0: Hi, everyone. On today's show, we are diving into college basketball and the world of the mid-majors. And sometimes it's an afterthought, but the Ivy League is always part of the growing conversation in the national spectrum of women's college basketball. And we're going to tell you why. It all starts right now. You are locked on women's basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Hi everyone, I am Missy Heydrich, National Correspondent for Women's College Basketball at the Next, and we're so excited to have you here. Thank you for making Locked On Women's Basketball your first listen every day. We are free and available on all platforms, including YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at Missy Hydrick and be sure to follow the Next at the Next Hoops and this podcast at Locked On Women's Basketball. I am so excited and so happy to be joined today. By Jen Hatfield, and Jen is a managing editor and one of the outstanding journalists that covers women's basketball at the next. And she also happens to be an Ivy League alumnus, which we will throw in there to start, um, and a wealth of knowledge when it comes to Ivy League women's basketball. And Jen, I think one of the things that if people follow us at the next, and we hope that they will continue to, and join us now. Um, You and I probably wear our love for mid-major basketball on our sleeve because it continues to elevate the national conversation all across the country as we think about tournaments and in all of the, I think, the the buzz around college basketball today, things like the portal and etc. But the Ivy League continues to elevate itself each and every season. And I think the 21-22 year really was not a disappointment.
1: Absolutely, it was it was a great season, and and you know some people might look at Princeton's fourteen and no conference record in the regular season and say how boring, but it was actually a, a really great uh, Ivy League season. Lots of youth around the league, but very competitive. Especially the the race for the final Ivy League tournament spot came down to the wire and actually was decided on a tie break. So. Um, even though Princeton was was doing its thing at the top, they have a new challenger emerging, and it was a very um, entertaining uh, race.
0: I feel like that new challenger in Columbia, when they go 12-2 and two this season, they're 25-7 and seven overall. They made a run through the WNIT, but those two losses are just to Princeton. So do we feel like things are sort of, um, you know, you're kind of the, the cream is rising to the top, so to speak, with just a couple programs? but yet a lot of competitive games all season. And I think teams really did push both Princeton and Columbia throughout the year.
1: Yeah, Princeton's most competitive game in the regular season was probably to Yale. They lost by 12 points and they were looking to be in trouble uh, in the second half. And then in the Ivy League tournament, they got pushed to the wire by four seed Harvard um, in what was a, a thrilling game. So they had they had their challenges, um, even though they, they came out with that that clean record. And and Columbia too was pushed. Um, at times they were a bit of a second half team this season and had to you know come back from some deficits. Um, Yale pushed them. Um, you know several teams pushed them. So um, I think it's easy to look at the standings and again draw some conclusions. But watching the games, we got a lot of really really great games in the Ivy League.
0: Well, this Princeton team, they had both the player of the year and the defensive player of the year. The rookie of the year actually came from Harvard, um, who we'll talk about a little bit later, a freshman from Texas and Harmony Turner. But when you think about those two players that really led the way for Princeton, Abby Myers, player of the year, and then Ellie Mitchell, who was a defensive player of the year. What kind of impact did those two kids have on that season and really kind of elevating this program? That Carla Baribi is building there.
1: Yeah, it's funny when you think about Abby Myers uh, coming into this, coming into last season. We didn't quite know what to expect from her, um, which is crazy to say and think about when you look at when you're looking at the unanimous Ivy Player of the Year, an honorable mention All-American, all of that. But she averaged something like six points uh, the season before that, which uh, was in 2019-20 because the pandemic canceled the entire intervening season. Um, so she'd averaged six points and, you know, people knew she was going to have to step up. A player like Julia Cunningham was going to step up, um, was going to have to step up. But uh, I'm not sure everyone realized that she was going to rise to the occasion as much as she did. Uh, least of all me, um, the clown who ranked Princeton second uh, in her preseason poll. So, uh, but she was, she, I mean, it's tempting to say that that Abby Myers was everything for that Princeton team. And I don't want that to suggested that there wasn't a good supporting cast around her because it was fantastic but they went as she went she set the tone she was their captain she played with a swagger that you could see through your tv screen Um, she was their leading scorer she just she set the tone in all ways on and off the court Um, and so that's going to be a big hole for them next year Um, but I don't think I'll be quite as, as silly, uh, where I rank them, uh, heading into next year, um, until further notice, they have to prove to me that, that, uh, they don't deserve to be on that one line. Um, and so, so Ellie Mitchell is the backbone of that Princeton defense that is so, you know, for the past several seasons, it's been one of the best in the country, really a pain to play play against. I've talked to several opposing coaches about that Princeton defense, um, and Ellie Mitchell is is their five player. She's only six one. They had a pretty undersized defense, which, when you think about all that they accomplished, is even more impressive. But she, um, you know, she's near the top of the Ivy League in steals per game as their center. Effectively, um, she's just a she's a great rebounder. Um, she just she gets footbacks. She just she's at the top of the scouting report for a player. You have to block out. So she's just very well respected on both ends. And but I would say like some of her stiffest competition for defensive player of the year was on her own team. You've got grace stone, her partner in the front court, who's actually a converted guard. So going back to their lack of size, um, she's five eleven, but she's great on the interior. You've got Julia Cunningham who's their perimeter defensive stopper. The way the Princeton defense works is there are no weak links. Um, It's not like you have to use an example from my Washington mystics beat. It's not like you have an Alicia Clark, um, yeah. that just shuts down everyone in her path. Um, right. The Princeton defense almost has, you know, three, four, five Alicia Clarks. Um, mm-hmm. And there's no, there are no liabilities. Even a player like an Abby Myers, who, who came in as, as a freshman and, and was asked uh, by then coach Courtney Vanhart, did your high school coach ever teach you defense Um, She she evolved during her career to the point where she was definitely not a liability on that end and very engaged and uh, kind of a pain in the neck to play against.
0: Well, and I think the thing about this Princeton squad going 25 and five last year, and as you mentioned, regular season and the Ivy League tournament title, but they continue to be part and maybe even a bigger part of the national conversation if people weren't really paying attention. You know that happens we know in the world of college basketball that a lot of the mid majors maybe are an afterthought or they convert people don't notice them until we get to tournament time well congratulations Princeton busted a lot of people's brackets because they had that huge upset win of Kentucky in the first round Abby Myers get twenty nine points but it really was won with their defense and so I think How does that win and that elevation transfer into next season for a team like Princeton and maybe overall for the league?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great um, kind of bar going into next season. Uh, The same thing could be said, too, with Columbia's run through the WNIT. It gives the team confidence that it can be done, um, has key players who may not have had that experience, shows them that they can do it, and then they come in. Um, knowing how to win. So, so if we were talking about the difference between Columbia and Princeton this season, I think it boils down to Princeton knew how to win already. They they have a championship tradition, and Columbia was learning how to win. Um, and for Princeton, you know, not all of its players had that postseason winning experience, so they just learned even more how to win that they can bring back someone like a Caitlin Chen, who was a sophomore last year, but in her first season playing because of the pandemic. And who scored a career high thirty in the Ivy League tournament and was just unstoppable. She comes. She comes back for her junior year um, with that experience, knowing that she can take over a game at any point. Um, that whole Columbia team now knows what it feels like to beat a Boston College and and a Clemson, which they did in the regular season, um, and comes in saying, "Hey, we'll we'll play anybody. We we'll, we can beat anybody." So. I think that's only going to raise the bar for the Ivy league. And then the other thing I would say about Princeton too is perhaps even more impressively than beating Kentucky in the first round, I would argue is losing to Indiana in the second round by only one point when Abby Myers and Caitlin Chen are both in foul trouble and you have to figure out where the heck your offense is going to come from. Um, So that was super impressive. They, as usual, a great defensive performance, but they had to manufacture some points against a tough Indiana team too.
0: Absolutely. Now, The transfer portal is probably one of the hot topics in college athletics, college basketball, especially Um, any coach that I talk to says, you know, we're still riding this wave. We're riding the wave of the extra year of eligibility, the one time waivers, you know, exceptions because of COVID and the pandemic. The Ivy League was in such a unique situation two years ago because they didn't even have a season. They play in 21, 22. But we are seeing some student athletes, we're seeing them in that portal. Abby Myers obviously is one of them. She's headed to Maryland. Um, But it looks as though when you start thinking transfers out of the Ivy League, that a lot of these are going to be those graduate transfers that are going to use that extra year of eligibility. Is that trickle-down effect still going to be in play here over the next couple of years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so just to make this clear for folks who uh, don't understand and may get in my Twitter mentions about this, By and large, Ivy League players are not transferring before they complete their degree. There is one this offseason, Maddie Plank went from Princeton to Davidson, uh, reportedly looking for a little more playing time. Um, But other than that, the the other eight players who are in the portal, they're all graduating and looking for a place to play. Um, The extra year of eligibility that they have that they can use anywhere in the country except for the Ivy League, which doesn't allow uh graduate students to to participate in college athletics and did not grant a waiver for for this year's class so um they they effectively have no choice abby myers could not come back to princeton etc on down the line so just want to make that super clear for folks but yes this is gonna this is gonna trickle down for all of the folks who um basically had a choice to make heading into uh 2020 2021 um when we didn't know whether the ivy league would have sports and they had to decide whether they were going to stay enrolled in school and lose that year of eligibility within the ivy league or whether they were going to take a year off of school entirely pause their education to retain that year of eligibility and come back and it was it was split a lot of players took the year off some of them like abby Myers, did not Um, but for all the ones who did not like a caitlin chen for example who is a rising junior now um, she will ha- she will be in the same boat once she graduates from Princeton. Um, so this is going to happen over the next couple of years, which honestly, uh, Power Five coaches should be should be pretty pleased about that because there's a lot of young talent in the Ivy League right now, um, and several of those players uh, did not take the year off.
0: Absolutely. It continues to be part of the conversation. It's not changing. And I had somebody tell me on a coach yesterday the portal is here to stay. It's just gonna have a very different look as we go forward.
1: Um, and, and, right. and a couple Ivy teams have even gotten players yeah. um, coming in using the portal too, which you don't necessarily think about. Um, nope. These aren't grad transfers, of course, but these are players like uh, Jada Patrick is is probably the most well-known example. She transferred from Duke to Columbia and really, you know, took m- much of last season to kind of settle in and see where she fit. And then the light bulb went off late in the season and she was just, you know, the ultimate X factor late in the season for them. So. Um, it's not super common, but I've talked to coaches who are saying, yeah, we'll we'll take a look in the portal. Um you know, it's it's difficult, but it's it's something that we're keeping an eye on. Mackenzie Forbes went from Cal to Harvard and was a huge contributor last season. Um, so so that's kind of a an undercurrent to the to the grad transfer uh, situation as well.
0: Absolutely. And it is all about finding the right fit, and sometimes it just you never know. And that's what, The portal is giving kids that opportunity. Okay, so our next segment, we are going to talk about your alma mater. We're going to talk about Harvard. But first, I want to tell everyone that this episode is brought to you by our friends at BetOnline.net. BetOnline.net is your number one source for all of your betting stats and sports info. You'll find all of the latest sports development news, odds, including this year's basketball championship matchup, the NHL Conference Finals, Major League Baseball, and of course, all of the latest fighting news from MMA and UFC to boxing, not necessarily my bailiwick, but that is information that a lot of folks are looking for. BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering information, including live betting, eSports, and more. Head to the website today and use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and actions. BetOnline where the game starts i am missy Hydrick, and thank you so much for making locked on women's basketball your first listen every day we have a very important favor to ask you we've put together a survey so we can learn more about listeners like you and make our favorite locked on podcast even better this is your opportunity to tell us what you like and what you don't like about locked on podcasts Go to LockedOnPodcast.com slash survey right now to get started. It will not take very long. And everyone that completes a survey can qualify for a chance to win one of 10 $100 Ticketmaster gift cards. To take our audience survey, go to LockedOnPodcast.com slash survey. Thank you for your help. All right, Jen Hatfield, let's talk about Harvard. And as we think about the... Longevity and the history of women's college basketball, so much of it has really been rooted in the Ivy League. If you look at the trajectory of coaches and the longevity, um, the dean of the Ivy League now heading into the the 22-23 season is going to be Dana Smith at Cornell. She's headed into 20 years there. There'll be 21 coming up, but it had been 40 years for the head coach of Harvard women's basketball and Kathy Delaney-Smith. You wrote an amazing article this year for the next. And so I encourage everybody out there, please go read Jen's work because it's fantastic. You will learn so much, not only about the Ivy League, but I think just really about the people that make women's basketball and college basketball what it is. But Kathy Delaney-Smith, after 40 years retiring from Harvard, What kind of impact did that woman, has she had on that institution?
1: Oh my goodness. It's, it's been huge. I can't do it justice. It's like when you like hold your arms out to be like this much and you're like, but I can't, I can't reach that far. Um, She's been, she's been everything to that Harvard program. Like almost literally um, there were only a handful of coaches before she arrived as a, as a super winning high school coach, I, I wrote a separate story about her career at the high school level, which is wild um, in the best way. Um, so she comes as kind of a, um, you know, she didn't have much of a national presence. She was a local, a local high school coach. And she just she shook up the culture a little bit, which was in need of shaking up, and created an Ivy League powerhouse that uh, competed with Dartmouth for titles year in and year out for literally decades Um, And there's been more parody lately, uh, but she's still, you know, she's revered among her peers. She's revered among her alumni. She's revered among people who didn't even play for her, but just crossed paths with her, which is a lot of folks. Um, I was talking to her associate head coach um, during the season. And I said, you know, what is it like when you go to a final four with Kathy? Like, you know, (laughs) can she, can she slip under the radar with all the power five coaches there or is she mobbed? And he was like, you can't get anywhere, like anywhere, <laughs> because everyone wants to talk to her, and she's really bad at wrapping things up and being like, I have to go. Um, right. So she's she's the mayor of the Final Four, essentially. So uh, yeah, and and for me, just, you know, I, I had thought about writing about Kathy before the season started, before she announced she was going to retire just because 40 years is a lot. Um, I wasn't envisioning writing something like 10,000 words on her, uh, but you just kind of get sucked in by her presence and by her alumni who were so generous with their time and so eager to talk to me about her. And and she just, she has this unique presence that I don't think I've seen um, before. She's just, she's, she's an icon at Harvard, really.
0: Absolutely. It sounds to me, and in, in um, one of the things that I've pulled out that she really, um, emphasized, maybe from the beginning, was relationships, both the relay, as you said, and those relationships, but it was also within the Harvard community, within within the institution, and understanding the uniqueness of the Ivy League, because, you know, like, as we were just talking about earlier, you know, they do not have that extra year exemption, and they don't take graduate transfers in the Ivy League. You know, things are different there. She embraced that and then was able to build something out of that and finding young people that wanted to be part of that. How, what, what ultimately was the sales pitch? What was the recruiting pitch that got a kid to say no somewhere, but yes to Harvard?
1: This is funny because I actually, I asked her straight up, like, pretend that I'm a recruit that you really want and tell me what your pitch is. Yeah. And. Part of it's part of it's in, like, her tone and her delivery, too. So the thing that's, like, very constant, if you talk to some of her first recruits and some of her last recruits, they all say the same thing. She's extremely direct. She's going to be honest with you. She's going to tell you what you're bad at. Um, and she's probably going to make you laugh while she does it. She's very disarming. She's very charming. She's got this thick Boston accent um, that everyone likes to mention. Um, so you just... As a former assistant told me, she is the opposite of what you think when you think you're going to sit down with a Harvard coach, right? You're, picking, you're picturing this stuffy woman, um, and she just instantly makes you feel comfortable and valued. And when you sit down with her, she talks to you like you're the only person in the room. So that's kind of the what it's, what it's like um, on a personal level. And then uh, what she quipped to me was, uh, if you have an opportunity to come to Harvard and you don't think about it very seriously, then you're not that smart.
0: So envision
1: that in the Boston accent. I won't, I won't deliver it that way, but that's kind of, that's kind of the, the um, that's kind of the pitch. It's, it's not that complicated. I mean, Harvard's a a big brand name that, that folks know. And she basically says, look, you don't have to sacrifice your academics for your athletics and you don't have to sacrifice your athletics for your academic goals either, because the Ivy league is such a strong basketball conference. You know, right. in the early years, for for players who may be worried that the sports weren't uh, up to up to the right level, she would say, "Come watch a practice. You'll see how good we are, um, right. and you'll see that you want to be a part of this." So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of deceptively simple sales pitch, um, and it, it it works. She when she was competing with Dartmouth, I talked to the former Dartmouth coach at that time, and and she basically said, "Yeah, Harvard got all of the the star recruits, and we got." the players that harvard didn't want basically and uh she called dartmouth the little engine that could against like basically the monsters and that happens
0: i would think in in 40 years you know we talk about her being a trailblazer and an icon i also think as we are looking at 50 year celebration of title IX and all of that someone like kathy delaney smith seen a, a little bit of everything in understanding things like gender equality, maybe seeing the inequality as it comes uh, as it relates to that. Can, did she give you or has over time in those conversations that you've had with her talked a little bit about that evolution? You know, we know that everything isn't perfect, but I'm assuming even at her institution at the Ivy League and how she's seen it on a national scale, maybe the, the, what that progress is and where we continue to go.
1: Yeah, we've, we've talked about that a lot, um, in part because her battles over Title IX started at the high school level. Um, I read about this in my story there, but uh, she infamously marched her girls team into their own locker room where a visiting boys team was changing because uh, she was like, enough of this. You know, my girls need their belongings. They were coming back from a road game and the administration wasn't willing to put the boys in any other locker room. So she was like, all right, girls, don't, don't scream, don't stare, just go get your stuff, be all business. And they did that and all the boys screamed and then uh, the administration never put uh, visiting boys in their locker room again. So, you know, that was, that was in the 1970s. Um, and so then she came to Harvard and as she told me, she kind of had to start all over. She'd made a lot of progress at Westwood High School in Massachusetts. Um, and then she got to Harvard and um, there were a lot of things she, wanted, she, she still needed to fight for. Um, whether it's practice time or meals or or even when they uh, redid their arena, she she fought to make sure that the men's and women's locker rooms were exactly the same. Um, you know, don't give the, the women's team a smaller locker room, that sort of thing. Um, so she's she's done that her entire career, mostly quietly, like to the point that many of her players at Harvard and, and at Westwood uh, did not realize what she was doing because she, as she told me, she regrets not involving them a little bit more, but she never wanted to plant the seed in their head that they were uh, second class. She wanted them to have the, to not realize that they were being treated poorly because she didn't want them to question um, where they stood in the world basically. Yep. Um, and so for her, you know, she's made a lot of progress, but when she sees something like Sedona Prince, uh, Sedona Prince's video about the weight rooms, um, that was a that was a disappointment for her. She was like, are we really still doing this? Like, I've right. been fighting for this for decades, and we're still doing that. Um, yeah. You know, equal pay, we can talk about like, US soccer and all that. Like, uh, you know, Kathy is someone who's who's always going to keep fighting. But, um, you know, I think for her, it's it's been a lot slower than she than she ever dreamed it would be.
0: Well, we've got change coming now at harvard with the retirement of kathy delaney smith and we're going to talk about some coaching changes in just a moment but before we do that i want everyone to think about yourself so feeling best starts with what we eat i know we all have to to do better sakara helps you live a healthy balanced lifestyle and truly enjoy it with delicious plant-rich transformational nutrition that builds a foundation for living in your best. It's a wellness company anchored in food as medicine on a mission to nourish your body through pl- the power of plants. Sakar gives you the tools you need to transform your life with their organic, ready-to-eat meal delivery program and functional wellness essentials. Their nutritional design, chef-crafted breakfasts, lunches, dinners are made with powerful, plant rich ingredients. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash locked on 20 to end or enter locked on 20 to at checkout. That's Sakara. S-A-K-A-R-A.com slash locked on 20 to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com Locked on 20. So I am here with Jen Hatfield, the queen of knowing everything about Ivy Women's College basketball. And we've talked about players, we've talked about last season, about what may be coming. We've had an icon retire from this outstanding league. And now there are two new coaching faces joining this coaching tree at Harvard and at Yale. Both seem like almost barrier breaking hires. And when first let's talk about Harvard, a new face after 40 years, that is going to be a huge change for everybody. But what does that look like now with Carrie Moore in that head coaching
1: seat? Obviously big shoes to fill. um, But she also returns a, dare I say, loaded roster, um, particularly on the perimeter. So that should ease the transition. Um, Carrie is someone who's uh, full of energy, full of enthusiasm, She's really hitting the ground, running, setting, setting, you know, the bar really high in terms of recruiting. And she has made no secret that she wants to contend for championships immediately. She's not doing any of this. Well, you know, the top half of the league finishing there would be great stuff. Nope. She wants that top spot. Um, I asked her, you know, a lot of people would run away from succeeding a legend like Kathy Delaney Smith, because that feels very daunting and almost like impossible. And she said, no, uh, it, it, you know, Kathy proved what was possible. And so what What better to go to than a place where it's already been shown it can be done rather than a place that has never had success and you're trying to do something that, that to this point has been impossible. So that's just kind of a, a sense of the the optimism that, that permeates her and the energy that she's going to bring to this program.
0: Do you do you foresee a kind of a change in style of play? As you said, loaded roster, a lot coming up in that backcourt. You've got the, the rookie of the year, and we mentioned our early Harmony, Harmony Turner, a freshman guard from Texas, returning. Um, does what they do on the floor change a lot, or is it just going to be about putting together a roster that continues to elevate this program?
1: It's a little bit hard to say because Kathy was a little bit of a chameleon, which is actually a word that her associate head coach used. And I love that description. She would change up her playing style style to suit her personnel and did so very dramatically actually last season because uh, Harvard had not a lot of size that was ready to contribute on the interior. So she pretty much went five out uh, and they shot a ton of threes. You know, Columbia's Megan Griffith told me – you know, Harvard takes a lot of shots that might not be good shots for our Columbia team, but they were good shots for that Harvard team. Uh-huh. Um, and so last year was so, you could call it extreme, that I don't think they'll keep that up, especially since they've recruited some size and have more of that coming inside. So they won't have to, uh, you know, kind of cover up that um, as much. Um, but I think, I think Carrie's going to kind of go. Back to basics a little bit, um, focus on the defensive end of the ball, which is probably where they struggled more last year than the offensive end. Um, so I think we'll see a, a more, I don't want to say defensively oriented, because obviously Kathy cared about defense, but I think we'll see a team that, that you know plays maybe a little bit more of a traditional style that's, that's defense first, even though they'll still be able to shoot the lights out with a bunch of, with, with a bunch of guards returning.
0: We mentioned it earlier, but Dana Smith at Cornell, 20 seasons. You've got Mike McLaughlin at Penn, 13. Megan Griffin at Columbia after their outstanding season. This was She was finishing six. Carla Baruby, this was just her third year at Princeton. So now we've got two new faces, and you've got Kerry Moore, but then also the Yale Bulldogs will have someone new in that head coaching chair. What does it look like in New Haven going forward?
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny. So I was talking at the beginning about how young the Ivy League was last year in terms of players, right? And now they're just going to be super uh, young and, and inexperienced, really, in the coaching department. Like it's wild that Carla Barubi is in the top half of the the league in terms of experience now, um, which is a sentiment really that she hard. shares. Yeah, yeah. Even even Megan Griffith is like, how am I the third most experienced coach in this league already? Um, and it's, if you look at the backgrounds of these coaches, there's also a definite Princeton tiger slant. So Megan Griffith, uh, coached under Courtney Banghart at Princeton, Carrie Moore coached at Princeton and Dalila Eshe who's the new head coach at Yale. She comes straight over from Carla Baruby's staff. Um, so there is a lot of, uh, tiger orange in the background, which I think is going to be a fun undercurrent to this upcoming season. Um, and just you know, like those Princeton Yale games that I talked earlier about how competitive uh, one of them was last year, and now you've got this like little coaching rivalry situation um, going on there. That's just going to be fun to watch. Watch that chess match. Um, so Dalila is actually strikingly similar to Carrie in terms of background. Um, both were high level players who were actually uh, you know played professionally before entering coaching. They've got similar. Rises through the ranks, both are known for their recruiting, both had stops at Princeton. They're both just like very qualified candidates who have a ton of enthusiasm, young, vibrant they're they're just you know, everything I've heard is home run higher. right so uh dalila didn't uh didn't mince words either. She said she wanted her team to be uh, the best conditioned. Of, of any team in the league uh, in her opening press conference and her players were in attendance. And she's like, that starts now. And I'm sure they were kind of like, "Uh Oh, um, yeah. but she's, she's also made it clear. She wants them to have a lot of fun even while they're outworking teams. Um, so I think her, her team's going to be fun to watch. And she returns some talent as well from the third place Ivy league team, most notably Camilla Emsbo, um who's six, five, was an Ivy player of the year candidate and, um, She's just she's just dominant. Um, she took a year off of school, so she will not be a grad transfer. Sorry, Power Five folks. But the the like fun side story there to watch, which I will certainly be covering, is that uh, Dalila coached her, uh, Camilla's twin sister Kira at Princeton last year. Uh, she, unfortunately, Kira has been injured much of her career, so didn't didn't always play on the court. But uh, so now she goes from coaching one twin to the other twin. Um, which is which is very fun, it is well,
0: and I think it 's also, as you said you 've got two teams who have had you know sustained success who have coaching changes. A lot of times we think that coaching changes are coming because a, a program is in need of a reset or a retool. but I think at Yale that isn 't necessarily the case because you had a head coach that moved on for another job here comes a very qualified person who understands the Ivy league and the uniqueness of what you have here and can kind of navigate and move those chess pieces so that they continue to be at the top half of that league.
1: Yeah, that's a great observation. Yale has been on an upward trajectory for the past several years under Allison Guth, who's now at Loyola um, and under the, under the watchful eye of our A-10 beat reporter, Natalie Hebron. Uh, So (laughs) Allison's, I'm sure, going to make a, an impact in that league, but really leaves the Yale program uh, trending up, and so and that was something that that Ache found very attractive. She she knew she does she doesn't have to come in and rebuild it. She just right. has to continue the momentum. And Camilla, i is supposed to be a senior, and so Ashe is not uh, shying away from saying we need to get Camilla a championship before she leaves either. So um, both of these coaches are are confident, uh ready to come in, they know what they're getting into, having coached at Princeton, and they're ready to uh shake up shake up the top. It's it's kind of ironic that Princeton's success over the past, you know, dozen years, they've won uh, about 75% of the Ivy League titles in that span, with Penn being their usual foil. Uh, but now Princeton's success over the years could contribute to to their downfall if we get more parity here over the next couple of years.
0: Absolutely, okay, so my last question to you before we go put you on the spot. You said that you didn't necessarily have Princeton at the top of yours last year, so, as we sit here on you know june tenth twenty twenty two who gets your top few spots on a preseason poll for Ivy League women's basketball for twenty two twenty three
1: yeah, I think I have to go with Princeton until someone proves to me that that they can beat them. However, Columbia is uh, closing in hard. Like, I, uh, there wasn't hesitation when I said that, but Columbia like does give me pause. I think they could absolutely take the top spot. It wouldn't totally surprise me, but I have to uh, learn from my past mistakes and give Princeton the nod. Um, until they prove they don't deserve it. And with players like Kaylin Chen, Julia Cunningham, Grace Stone, Ellie Mitchell, so on coming back and a great recruiting class coming in, I think Princeton could totally do it. Um, Columbia is loaded coming back. I think they are the clear number two, if not the number one, um, absolutely loaded. I think we could very much have a two-bid Ivy League to the NCAA tournament. Um, So we'll see how that goes. That's going to be something to watch all year. And then after that, it gets complicated um, in part because of the coaching changes. Um, and then we haven't, we haven't talked too much about Penn either. Uh, they, they were actually my preseason number one and they finished fifth. They just never really cohered as a team, which was surprising to me. Um, had some suspensions early in the year and I just don't think it quite gelled and, but Penn has historically been a great program in the Ivy League, so I'm curious how they rebound from that. They still have Kayla Padilla, who's a former um, Ivy Rookie of the Year and and potential Player of the Year candidate. So I'm not really sure at this point where I put a a Yale, Harvard, and Penn. Um, I think Harvard probably has the most talent in terms of quantity returning, um, but Penn and Yale both have fide player of the year candidates too. So it's, it's kind of which combination of talent um, you like. I feel like if you smooshed any two of those teams together, they would be right at the top with Princeton and Columbia. Yeah. Um, and I think that they will kind of have to fight it out for uh, two, three teams for two remaining oh. Ivy tournament spots. Um, so not that different of a pecking order, I suppose, uh, next year compared to last year, but it, it will look a little bit different with new head coaches. Um, the level of play, I think it's fair to say, will be even higher as we're, you know, getting more experienced players with a lot of returners coming back. Um, I think it's going to be a really exciting and competitive season. And of course, uh, you know, the bottom of the league should also be improving. So so I'm really excited for the the parity uh, next season and and just how elite the top can be as well.
0: Well, I always like to say it doesn't matter what sport it is, but if you want to be the best, you've got to beat the best. So we'll leave it at that. And I would I would echo what you said. If anybody wants someone's going to have to knock Princeton off that number one line in order to give themselves. And uh, but I think for what will be interesting as well, which is something I'll be keeping an eye on, is how many power fives decide they want to put some of these Ivy League teams on their non-conference schedules and look for that type of challenge because it will be a challenge no matter what. Uh, Jen Hatfield, thank you so much for coming on with me today. Tell everyone where they find you and all of your work.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I I love talking Ivy League hoops. It's hard to shut me up when you, when you let me on. Uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Jen Hatfield1. That is Jen with two N's. And then Hatfield is exactly like it sounds. Um, And then you can find my work at The Next uh, with everyone else on our great team. So, yep, Twitter or TheNextTubes.com.
0: Well, awesome. Thank you so much. And you can find me, you can find Jen and all of our colleagues at TheNextTubes.com and for this podcast right here, Locked on Women's Basketball. Thank you, everyone, for making Locked on Women's Basketball your first listen every day. Make sure to go and check out Locked On NBA Big Board host Rafael Barlow from NBA Draft Junkies and author of the NBA Big Board newsletter is joined by Richard Stamen, Sam Ferris, Leif Thulin, giving fans an in-depth look into the NBA draft, mock draft, player rankings, and of course the big boards. It is coming. The NBA draft is right around the corner. It's free and available wherever you get your podcasts. We will see all of you right back here next time on Locked On Women's Basketball.